How do you feel now? I can't move. You can't move. Why can't I move? You're paralyzed. Just like that day when you did nothing. You did nothing. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, wait, wait! Sink. Now you're in the sunken place. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 87 this time, and this is the kickoff of Halloween 2018. My birthday is at the end of October, and my whole life, Halloween and horror have been significant to me, so I commandeer the month for a celebration at this best time of the year. We are starting this time with Erica's choice, so what are we talking about today? I think I picked a pretty darn good one to kick off the month, don't you agree? I would definitely say so. I think this was one of the best, if not the best thing I saw last year, and that is Get Out from 2017. Written and directed by Jordan Peele with Daniel Kaluuya, Allison Williams, Katherine Keener, Bradley Whitford, Caleb Landry-Jones, Marcus Henderson, Betty Gabriel, Lakeith Stanfield, Stephen Root, and last but definitely not least, Lil Rel Howery. A young black man is taken by his white girlfriend to meet her parents for the first time. How about we get right into the horror? Okay, let's do it. And that, of course, is the suburbs. This opening scene is straight out of Halloween, the film, for me. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's a great example of the way Jordan Peele takes the stock pieces of horror films and then does something unique with them. If you've seen autumnal horror films, you recognize that street. You've seen it in Halloween, in Nightmare on Elm Street. The street lamps, the suburbs, leaves blowing around in the stillness, it puts us right there. And that camera focusing on our first person. We don't know this man, but we have his point of view. He's walking and talking on the phone, trying to find a location in this suburb. And that perfect camera placement, we see a white car out of the corner of our eye flipping around like Michael Myers is driving the thing. Michael Myers prefers station wagons and tow trucks. Thank you very much. That is a good point. And then we see the camera swirling around this man. And again, in that perfect choice, we're taken by surprise as the man who was driving that car wearing some sort of crazy helmet begins to attack this other man. He's put in a headlock and drug into the car as the camera pulls away. And I thought, he's beyond our help at this point. It's a street we've seen before, but it's a different type of anxiety than we usually see in mainstream horror. If this is a young girl walking home from a babysitting gig, for instance, it's a totally different feeling when that car turns around to creep up on her. The thing that Peel does with this environment that we have seldom, maybe never, ever seen before is put his fears as a black man on screen. Now, we'll talk a lot about race in this episode, obviously. The film is about racism and specifically about what it's like to be a young black man in America right now. And I know that there are people that don't want social commentary in their horror, but that does not make any sense to me to even say. Because what are the classic horror films, if not unconscious manifestations of our cultural anxieties. If they aren't a particular set of cultural anxieties that you share, that does not make them invalid. Home invasion films as a metaphor for fear of foreigners will always have an audience. Atomic era monsters and mutations are less than subtle in their fears of science run amok. It's no coincidence that we had things like Hostel and Teristas in the years during the Bush administration when we were reasonably concerned about how Americans were perceived around the world. World War II, the McCarthy era, Kent State and Vietnam, all of these things seeped into the horror landscape at one point or another, and now Peel is adding a long overdue voice to that chorus. 
don't do anything stupid is something I have never had to tell myself when walking in a new neighborhood, but it's a thing that literally gets people killed in the worst of circumstances. I know this, so I feel it in the pit of my stomach when Lakeith Stanfield turns around just to walk the other way, hoping to defuse this situation. Now you say we know he's beyond hope already. Is this because of the structure of it? Is it because we know that the pre-credit sequence victim never makes it? And a larger question, does knowing that it is horror affect how you process this unexpected violence and abduction? Is it easier to deal with because we expect sinister developments? I'm going to say yes to all of those things. Okay. Peel does a great job here of putting us in the mind of a black man with these inherent fears. And he also knows from Halloween how scary the suburbs can be. Yes, I knew it was a horror film going in. And I really don't think I can watch anything without a preconceived idea that a nighttime scene when everyone else is behind closed doors, that you have no aid in sight. And in this case, a totally different world, no aid you could go for because you picture Laurie Strode in Halloween running from door to door, screaming and yelling for help. Built into the whole subtext of this is the fact that this young man likely cannot do that without raising undue alarm and potentially putting himself at risk. Who's he going to call for help? Because people can and do get yanked off the street. But I can tell you, as a person sitting in the audience, I know that if someone comes banging on our door at night, or the daytime for that matter, I most likely won't answer. It doesn't matter who the person is. You better be bringing my Mondo Macabro order if you're banging on my door, and that's the only reason I'm going to answer it. Because I've also seen the town that dreaded sundown, and that door <laughs> is not much of a barrier. So if someone is screaming bloody murder out there, I'm calling the police first, and then maybe looking through the keyhole, and that's about all I can guarantee you. Okay, so pre-credit sequence mayhem and menace is established, and we get to the credit sequence, and I noticed this time more than when we watched it in the theater... I really like this score. I guess it's the benefit of having the Blu-ray menu on a loop beforehand. It primed me to listen for it a little bit more. Michael Abels was scoring a film for the first time, so he and Peel had a thing in common with this, and I think he did an amazing job. He didn't overplay the tension or undercut the comedy. It's a really nice balance, and that chorus of dead elders telling Chris in Swahili to run to save himself is a brilliant and eerie opener. African vocals over the main titles, just one more thing I have never seen in a major studio distributed horror film before. I think it's also beautifully placed as we first feel like we're riding through the country. So I'm looking at what to me appears to be American countryside, more rural, with this music that calls to something deeper. Even though I don't know what the words are, I sense its meaning. It's like a folk spiritual dirge from beyond the grave somehow. But that cuts away to what I think of as a kind of a fancier, urban, chic, hip apartment. We see first the world that Chris has created around himself before we see him. And that next piece of music is also incredibly fascinating. They've chosen Redbone by Childish Gambino. And Peel picked it because of those specific lyrics, Stay Woke and Don't Close Your Eyes. But regardless of that, it's just a modern sensibility as we watch a young man getting ready and then parallel to that, a young white woman getting pastries. He lets her into his apartment and they kiss. This is a relaxed domestic scene. She's petting his dog as he's packing. This is Chris and Rose. This scene where we meet them as they are preparing for the weekend makes me think about how much I like Peel's way with the camera. In a way that's similar to Blue Ruin, for instance, and Jeremy Saulnier, he's not fussy, he's not ostentatious, he's solid, and this definitely does not feel like a debut feature at all. By the way, he's working with cinematographer Toby Oliver here, who does have some history of making solid suspense and horror films. Well, it's a very assured production, and that's no accident either. You don't make something this good as a fluke. Peel strikes me as a guy who has always paid very close attention to how things were made, storing information away for future reference, even when it wasn't him that was making them. And that's an approach that I will always respect. I imagine he also took such care with it because it was such a personal thing for him. He worked on it in some way or another for almost a decade. 
So Chris's occupation as a photographer, one who makes social commentary through capturing images, is more than just a way to work in a vision metaphor. It's easy to make the jump that the protagonist is the director's surrogate. And this next bit is something that he related to, something that happened to him. This is when Chris, who is clearly reluctant to go wherever it is that they're going, asks, do they know I'm black? He means her parents, who are white, and she responds, no, should they? I think it's another opportunity to put us in this world and make us think with a different perspective. Should it make a difference? Should she have to say something? If she doesn't, what onus does that put on him? Is he paranoid to start with? What have these past experiences possibly been? Yeah, I thought a similar thing. It immediately made me think, is there even an ideal way to treat the question? And for right now, I'm going to lean on time and place as crucial to the conversation here. When this was made, the pendulum was swinging back and swinging back hard from the Obama-era misconception that we had entered some sort of post-racial cultural climate. In retrospect, that was clearly not true and might never be true. And so he has reason to be concerned and will likely always have reason to be concerned. I have a lot more about this, but I'm going to save that for the end once we get to the last conversation that he has with Stephen Root's art dealer. I'm definitely wondering, what is he going to have to navigate? Even though Rose is adamant that her family, they're not racist. So we're already tense for him, but Peel breaks that up a little bit because he quickly introduces Rod, his best friend who works for the TSA. I think a big advantage that this film has over the rest of the genre is having a skilled comedian at the helm. So the time-honored device of having a friend or sidekick for comic relief actually works. There are a lot of bad examples in the history of the genre. Shelley Finkelstein in Friday the 13th Part 3 is the low point of the genre for me. Basically because they confuse being abjectly pathetic with being funny somehow. The ratio needs to be just right, and I don't think it happens very often. I generally have a low opinion of horror comedies. Night of the Creeps is probably the most comedic horror film that I think actually hits its mark. But this works really well. Peel understands the function of humor as the relief valve from the tension not being the focus. Yes, it was an important thing to both talk about these issues and demonstrate that we can have fun at the same time, but the laugh should be a bug, not a feature. He also had a huge advantage in that Lil Ray Howery is a comic too, and a really good one. If you have not heard his Milton on the Bongo story, by the way, you are missing out. You should listen to that right away. By the way, he has a sitcom coming out called Rel, and this is one I would actually watch. And like you said, Rel is also a gifted comedian, and he ad-libbed most of his lines, by the way. And so when he says, don't go to a white girl's parents' house... I'm laughing along, too. I think he's absolutely great. He was my favorite character then. He's my favorite character now. I wouldn't go to a white girl house unless I had to. And I love you. Hopefully my mom is not listening to this episode. <laughs> well, Chris and Rod are having this conversation in the cars. Chris and Rose are driving to her parents' house. This is the rural America. They're joking around, having a good time, and all of a sudden, again, that great horror camera work, they hit an animal. They can so often be clumsy, but them hitting that deer is a well-crafted jump scare. I imagine that it's going to get you every time you watch it, even though you know it's coming. Yeah, there's a moment coming up here that completely caught me off guard, even though I've seen this. And I think, yes, just like with Alien, the 20th time will be no different than the first. So far, I think we're getting to learn a lot about Chris. The way he approached that conversation about do your parents know almost as an apology, and the way he treats this dying deer, looking for it, staring at it, some part of that is obviously connecting to something inside of him. Well, in the aftermath of this accident, we get our first interaction with what I would call the outside world, not their social circle, and a potential hostile encounter with this police officer when he asks to see Chris's ID. And we get that, here we go, feeling in our gut, but Rose steps in, and this is also the first instance that a second viewing drastically changes the way you interpret what you see on screen. It's a classic misdirection. It seems like she's passionately sticking up for him and railing against the injustice of the situation, but she's really just making sure there's no record of his presence, no paper or digital trail for when he turns up missing. 
I didn't even think about that in the second viewing. I had to read about that in order for that to occur to me. But it is perfect. It gets us on Rose's side because Chris is already reaching for his ID. We get the feeling that just like with that, here we go again. I know what I'm supposed to do here or I know what I have to do here. And her standing up for him wins the day. The cop backs off. And so they're on their way again to her parents' house. And we first see it, and it's quite luxurious. This is rural America in the sense that I can pay to have my neighbors be very far away from me. Yes, rural in the Greenwich, Connecticut way, not in the Des Moines, Iowa way. There's that wonderful use again of out of the corner of our eye, suddenly there's the groundskeeper. And he waves oddly, but we don't linger on that for more than just a moment. We're parking and we're meeting the parents. Practically the first thing out of dad's mouth, we're huggers. Now we have achieved true horror. Good point. And it's that call back here to the beginning. As we see Chris enveloped by this family, the camera pulls away and we know he's beyond help. Things are weird from the very beginning, obviously. They kick things off talking about hitting the deer on their way up, and that conversation immediately takes on an edge. It is fraught with implications, with her dad comparing deer to rats with the out-of-control breeding, all but saying the only good one is a dead one. It could have only been more pointed if he started complaining about the deer buying cell phones with their welfare money. A normal weekend at the parents already holds the promise of being the longest weekend of your life without this business on top of it. Dad here, Bradley Whitford, is volubly affable, laughing and joking while mom, Catherine Keener, is rolling her eyes. She has her legs crossed. To me, she comes off as much colder. Well, as an extension of dad's gregariousness, he wants to take Chris on a tour of the house. And this tour demonstrates to me how well thought out the film is. Nothing is wasted. Glimpsing through a doorway... The camera oh-so-briefly lingers on the chair that would become Chris's hypnotic prison. It quickly passes over pictures of her mess of a brother. It introduces the idea of Jesse Owens as a catalyst in some way for everything that follows. There are pictures of Grandpa, the Olympic hopeful who lost to Jesse Owens. He almost got over it. <laughs> no kidding. There's a quick nod to the basement that's sealed up because of black mold. And we're also given a good idea of the absolute seclusion of the house. We are literally in go ahead and scream. We are miles from where anyone will hear you territory. We also meet the servants, Georgina and Walter. And dad is very aware of the optics of that situation. So he awkwardly addresses it. I think it's fascinating to talk about those assumptions here. I don't know if you recalled what yours were, but Peel mentions that just because you're a black servant to a white family doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have some sort of a noble life. And yet, it is what it is. He specifically chose the actors Bradley Whitford and Katherine Keener because of their representation of white liberal elite from previous roles. Emphasis on the liberal part. And I think again about what you mentioned, the pervasiveness of that post-racial myth. So I love that I'm already thinking about something interesting. And yet, the movie is moving forward. Well, they settle down for conversation around the table and a glass of tea, and her parents begin to grill Chris about his smoking. They couch it in concern for their daughter's health, but the second time around, we know that they are only concerned about diminishing his value in the upcoming auction. They push the idea of hypnosis on him, and they are unnecessarily aggressive about it, it feels like. It's been that way since they arrived. The linguistic affectations, their performative allyship, the ham-fisted displays of just how much they are not racist. The whole time there is this undercurrent of mild antagonism cloaked in beneficence. And a lot has been said about what you just referred to, the skewering of the idea of the well-meaning liberal. And for me it's kind of a yes and no proposition. Because they're not actually well-meaning liberals. They are actually lunatic racists practicing sci-fi eugenics. I chose the word cloaked very specifically. They are wearing the skin of well-meaning liberals, just like they will soon bid to be wearing Chris's skin. I understand what Peel is trying to say, though, about masks and a hostility that potentially lies beneath the seemingly kind gesture. It just may have been a more potent symbol to have an actual well-meaning liberal that in some way did harm by trying to help, rather than just trying to harm the whole time. 
I think first that we have to take it on face value as it comes to us, as it's developing. So it does seem ham-fisted, but in the way where I can identify things that I have done or have seen done. The uncomfortable physical cues like mom tapping, which we know is going to have greater portent later, and Chris thrumming on the table. But if a smoker came into my house, I would treat them as if they were history's greatest monster. (laughs) I would be so incredibly aggressive about shaming them and trying to get them to stop. Point of order, and you've seen this on every car trip that we've ever taken together, the thrumming of the fingers could mean he's just a drummer, not a smoker. That's very true, but I'm watching his face and his body, and to me it's saying something different. It's also being in the intense glare of a mother, which he hasn't been for a while. We're going to learn some more about that. So I'm not sure that it's the best time right now to talk about was it a good choice to have the family be terrible, horrible monsters, or to get into more of a satirical level of the terrible things we well-meaning liberals can do. Okay, well, we'll table that for a second, and we'll move to someone who is obviously more clearly monstrous. We meet her brother, and he's obviously nuts. I can see why he would be interested in eugenics as his salvation, because he looks like nothing but a twitchy bundle of recessive genes. He looks like a Carney's castaway. (laughs) He's even more overtly aggressive than the parents. Challenging Chris, referring to his genetic makeup, the confrontation verges on becoming physical, Where do you come down on Caleb Landry Jones' performance? Of the actors that I think of as having a lot of tics, for me, he falls in the middle. Someone like Sam Rockwell, I give a lot of leeway. Jeremy Davies is at the other end of the spectrum. Most of the time, I can't even watch him. Jones falls in between, and it just depends on how well he was cast. In this case, I think it works. Do you? I absolutely do. I think his skin and his ragged facial hair do a lot of the heavy lifting. But that way that he can't quite enunciate so that the words are rolling in his mouth and you have to pay closer attention to him drives me nuts in a good way. During that exchange, we learn that there's going to be this big get-together, this party that has continued as a tradition started by Rose's grandfather. During this, we see that Georgina, the maid, is clearly distracted, behaving oddly, And she's dismissed by, go lay down and get some rest. It's an odd thing to say to someone that works for you rather than a family member. So it's kind of a tell, I thought. Again, I didn't really pick up. I just thought that mom was cold and unfeeling. But this could also work at that level. That, unfortunately, he's just involved in a family of creeps. Even if they were to welcome you with open arms doesn't mean they don't have their own agenda or terrible behaviors. They don't necessarily have to be murderous racists. In the film at this point, Rose and Chris are back in their own room. And Rose is talking about how crazy her family is acting, how odd it is. And he says, really, without aggression, I told you so. And she apologizes. He's constantly making light of this, trying to use some jokes to lighten everything up, not getting into any sort of a confrontation and not delving into their behavior further. The script, though, Jordan Peele originally had a different scene planned. He was going to have Chris confront Rose and immediately want to try to leave. Rose was going to plead with Chris to stay, but Peele decided to reverse that situation. I'm glad that he took that out. I'm glad that he changed that because this is a theme that recurs and I have a little more to say about this later when it comes up again. In terms of Chris sublimating his anger, avoiding confrontation. Exactly. Peel decided instead to have Rose manipulate Chris and we the audience as though she is awakening to her own racism and this reality that everyone else is living in and that she's the one that's talking about leaving. So then Chris has to disarm the situation. And that secondary choice of having the black character say, I can basically take this kind of racism. Well, after this stressful first day, Chris understandably can't sleep, so he goes outside to smoke. Did every musical sting also make you jump here? A little bit, but the big jump scare I was referring to when we see Georgina pass behind him. Well, they all work because, like all the other tropes, Peel is judicious with them. 
Chris encounters Walter and Georgina again in their own unique way. Hindsight makes it clear that Grandpa never got over that loss to Jesse Owens. And going back in, he discovers that Rose's mom is up late too, and she invites him in, but it's more of a demand than a request. Come and sit with me. This has to be a relatable instance for a lot of people, the disadvantage of being subject to the default power of the parents in this situation. Sort of like my point earlier, this could just be a creepy family, but I guess that probably would have ended up as a Mike Lee film. Well, if you find yourself here, you're anxious to make a good impression, you're just trying to put your head down and get through the weekend and get back on your own home ground again. But Chris is curious about this hypnotism. It could be helpful to him. I do want to mention I really like the teacup as the hypnotic trigger here. For a couple of reasons, the sound is bright and cuts through all the other noise and the scraping is just discordant enough to be pleasing to me. And the object itself connotes gentility and fragility. She uses it to regress him to when his mother died and we find out that she was the victim of a hit and run left to bleed out by the roadside just like the deer they hit earlier. So now, all of those things that Dad was saying about the deer being vermin that overbreed, that begins to sting a little more if you remember that. As in our opening scene, she prompts him to sink into the floor. And we can argue over the subtlety of some of these metaphors, but I don't think we can argue with the potency of the sunken place equating with this condition of being marginalized. The sunken place, just like this community that he's in, there's no one to hear you scream. You don't exist. It's also really striking imagery because through this scene they're both addressing the camera and then he's watching the mother as if she's on a TV screen. The TV screen that young Chris was glued to, trying to keep a sense of normalcy, not calling 911 for his mother though she was so late because to do that would have been to acknowledge that something was terribly wrong. And now, this mother is on this television screen as he's in this void. This scene also is one of complete virtuosity for me. I would have loved to have seen this rehearsal process. Because within the confines of the scene, Daniel Kaluuya is asked to get to an incredibly deep emotional place that he is adamant about not wanting to go to, and yet can't stay away from, and can be recalled to within a moment. It's beautiful. And apparently this was his audition scene as well, and he clearly nailed it. And nailed it over and over and over again. There's one other scene that I want to talk about when we get to it later. But this is a man connecting with his major loss as a young boy, screaming in silence. Well, the virtuosity that you mentioned, for me, that operates on the level of how well-crafted a slow burn the movie is as a whole. The horror is in the discomfort, in the suspicion, and being constantly kept off balance, never being able to let your guard down and relax, being kept in that sunken place. A common criticism I hear in relation to Get Out is that it's not scary. And I think this is a good place to talk about the difference between horror and terror. People frequently conflate the two, but horror is not necessarily the promise of fear. It can be a component but equally important to the equation are dread, disgust, shock, dismay, revulsion. And at least in my mind, none of those things are explicitly tied to being afraid. There's more to horror than being scared. There's also a second part to the not scary argument that I think is even more significant that I will get to before we're through. I know I keep saying I'm saving stuff for the end, but I'd like to develop some of these themes in the conversation before we get to that stuff. I'm still scared. <laughs> we're in the woods. There's a creepy guy chopping wood. He has weird mannerisms. They don't seem to speak the same language. And he's telling himself to mind his own business. There are a lot of different, to me, scary angles here as well. And Jordan Peele specifically set out, because horror is his favorite genre, to have at least 20 scares in this. He felt like if he had that many, he was going to have a solid film. I think he succeeded. Just sit next to me on the couch the next time anybody wants to watch this. Well, Chris finds himself back in his room after the hypnosis session, and he's telling Rose about it. And he is clearly, once again, uncomfortable at something that's going on. And you referred to this already. Multiple times in the film, Chris confides in Rose each time eventually downplaying his fear or complaint. 
And I have to ask myself, how many times can you say it's not a big deal in your life without it just grinding you down? It takes on a lot more weight in these instances than if I am occasionally saying it to you, for example. We have to take a lot more things into consideration here. The potential negative consequences for Chris if he makes waves versus a possible lifetime of deferential behavior to avoid those consequences. Add to that the no-win situation of being considered paranoid, or even worse, having someone convince you that you are being paranoid. There have to be people out there, I know they exist, who can relate to this idea of, am I being gaslit? How much do I have to subsume my personality, whatever that is, to be with this person, or to be in this other world? I come back again to the beauty of the screenplay. Chris is not a person who seems like he's going to make waves. I think he just doesn't want to be noticed in that way. Is that a classic photographer personality trait, regardless of race, having a thing between you and the real world, wanting to disappear behind that camera? I think there's that element of it. And I think, again, Peel is building to that character because we see his work first before him. He's showing us who he is without the tools necessarily at this point to tell us who he is. I think part of it's a function of youth and that huge loss. He was essentially orphaned when he was 10 or 11 years old. So this character that has been created has so many interesting facets that we can explore. But back to your point, I think Peel is specifically speaking to people other than us about, no, you're not paranoid. And here's what I'm going to show you. And does he ever show us just exactly how Chris's fears are definitely not unfounded? The day of the party arrives, and the strain and the awkwardness of Chris's interaction with the parents is turned up to 11 with these partygoers. Let's see your form, the golfer says. How handsome is he? They're touching him. One of the women asks Rose, is it better? And we know what she means. Fair skin has been in favor, but now black is in fashion. If this were me, we are leaving right now. On subsequent viewing, Rose is appalled, not because she finds it offensive, but because everyone at this party is tipping their hand. They're shopping. But the first level it works on, and I think it works because we have seen these things before. We've probably been in situations where we've heard other people say these things. Black bodies are coveted and fetishized. This isn't the first time in popular culture you've ever heard some moron talk about black people in sports. Is sex better with a black man? So again, the party could exist on its own level and we would be able to recognize it as reality. But now we know that they are tipping their hands. I love this scene also for how much Peel is showing his horror chops. This gathering is a great throwback to those movies from the 60s and 70s where the cult is gathering and the net is closing around you. Everything from Rosemary's Baby to the Wicker Man to the Devil Rides Out, that's all part of this lineage. And it's such an unnerving feeling, that encroachment and the helplessness to fight it. So Chris's relief is palpable when he sees Logan, the only other black person at this gathering aside from Walter and Georgina. That relief is short-lived, though, because Logan is clearly not the brother-in-arms that he assumed. And we realize Logan is our man from the beginning, the opening scene, who was abducted. He's now in a different style of dress. He's with a much older white woman. And we have to think again about our assumptions, blackness and whiteness. How are we to interpret his odd mannerisms? Does he have to bond with Chris because he's another black person? What level of choice or agency is he displaying, and are we giving him any sort of credit for that, or do we need to be telling him to get out? Chris actually finds more of an ally in Stephen Root's character, and there's comfort here for a couple of reasons. One, he's blind. He can't physically see him, so it seems like one potential avenue of prejudice is automatically closed off. Two, he's a compatriot. He can relate to him regarding work. Eyes and cameras are integral to both men's idea of themselves and their self-worth. My favorite touch here is that out of the corner of our eye in this scene, we see some people playing badminton. Chris decides to go back inside and upstairs to their room, and this is when everything 
clearly changes. As soon as he's up the stairs, everyone, every party goer, stops talking. Yes, all that conversation is set dressing, as it turns out. I like this break because this slight diversion allows Peel to touch on another facet still of this issue effectively in a very short time. At least just enough to leave us with places to take the conversation when the lights come up. When Chris goes upstairs to retrieve his phone, this simple act gives us an opportunity to examine the politics of interracial relationships on both sides. The implication that he makes is that Georgina is voicing her objection to their relationship by passive-aggressively unplugging his phone. Since Georgina is actually grandma, we eventually figure out what's motivating that, but in this moment, we know that Chris is aware of possibly getting static from both sides here. It's not just the white people that he has to be cautious of. He is also wary of potential resentment and anger from black women that might see his relationship with a white woman as improper or a betrayal. Peel doesn't linger on it, but it adds another layer to all of the things that Chris is trying to work his way through here. And I know you particularly like this scene where so many things seem like they are trying to crack through Georgina's mask. What about that did you find so compelling? It's the same idea as Chris's scene with Missy. Georgina, played by Betty Gabriel, is called upon to go to this incredible place within seconds. Just like with Walter, Chris and Georgina don't speak the same language. He's also trying to play it off. He's not going to snitch on her. He says everything's fine, everything's fine. Her face becomes so tense and she's laughing as she's crying. We see this adult woman in hair that is not her own tell herself, no, no, no. They treat us like family here. Those two scenes, those two actors really stand out for me. Well, back at the party, Chris takes a picture of Logan and all hell breaks loose. And what we come to understand is a rare moment of lucidity, a brief emergence from the sunken place. He screams at Chris to get out. It's played off as a seizure, but Chris knows that that is not the case. In fact, this stirs some flicker of recognition in him. He says, it felt like I knew him. In this conversation with Rose, he also says, I just need to go. And I'm thinking, finally, way ahead of you 20 minutes ago, my friend. But once again, Rose manipulates him expertly, keeping him here by saying she'll leave. He quickly texts a picture of Logan to Rod, who instantly recognizes him as their acquaintance, Andre. And I don't think I've ever laughed as hard at someone yelling sex slave in my life. I know he's the comic relief, but maybe what makes him so effective for me is that Rod is the only one who has been saying what I would have been saying the whole time. How are you not scared of this? We have got to go right now. Well, unfortunately, it's too damn late for all of that because the auction is taking place. They call it bingo, which I think is a beautiful touch, too. In a direct callback to slave auctions, the members of the party hold up bingo cards to bid on Chris. Yeah, I mentioned that the symbolism sometimes isn't so subtle. This is clearly a 21st century version of the slave trade. And this was not a party. This was a ploy to drive up the price. It's not subtle, but it sure is effective to watch it taking place silently. The number of fingers that Dad holds up is Chris's fate. And it's Jim Hudson, his ally at the party, who gets the winning bid. As you mentioned... It's Rose who gulls him into staying. He's still avoiding emotional confrontation here, and she is using that sociopathy to convince him that she's on his side. Before we get into that scene, this is where I wanted to talk about how a person could be lulled into staying, which is not an uncommon horror trope, or really any sort of trope in film. Someone who's very attractive who's very convincing, whom we've spent five months getting to know, who we think we love, who professes to love us. Did you find all of that believable or was part of you saying no, no, no? Approaching it from just a general standpoint, not attaching myself to any character, I can definitely see how that would work. Because it seems to me like textbook manipulator abuser behavior. Now, if I am specifically Chris, I don't know that I fall for it, 
or do I? Because I am so hungry for connection because I am carrying this grief around, this guilt for feeling like I've abandoned my mother. So it's hard to say. As a general rule, I can see where someone would go for it, but I don't know that after a lifetime of having suffered so many indignities that Chris would be so willing to cast aside all suspicion in this case. The scene that comes up, I think, is really interesting again. This is Chris talking in what seems to be for the first time about the night that his mother died. That she bled out, as we talked about. That possibly, if he had called for help, she may have been found. But she died cold and alone, and nobody was looking for her. As we know right now, Chris is in a bit of a similar situation. And Rose cries with him. They tell each other that they love each other. He tells her, I'm not leaving here without you. And Jordan Peele talked about that this was a really difficult scene for Daniel Kaluuya. They were trying to get it wrapped quickly. And he couldn't quite figure out the motivation there. And it hinged upon realizing that this was Chris saying, I am ready to take care of you. You are my family. Assuming that mantle of adulthood that he hadn't quite gotten to yet. Well, if Chris would have just listened to me and Rod, he would know that you don't get distracted by any of that stuff when it is time to get the hell out. With other things that could potentially be plot holes, I can think of good reasons, enough of them at least, to justify their inclusion. But honestly, the convenience of this shoebox of Rose's photos of old boyfriends and Georgina on a silver platter is the one thing in the film that feels a little lazy. The only argument that makes it even halfway make sense is that these people are such lunatics that they are now just taking pleasure in taunting him. But I don't know if I fully buy that. To me, it seems like classic serial killer behavior of keeping the trophies. I like it just because we get to see Georgina as the woman she really was. We also get to see those cool, creepy little attic doors. My Aunt Marcia has those <laughs> creepy doors in a room in her house. That's where ghost dolls live. Exactly. That is why I love those little doors so much. Of course you do. Here, though, I do get an interesting universal element to this. Maybe more for women, but to me it seems much broader than that. Of realizing that you have been betrayed. That you're with a sociopath and it is way too late to do anything about it. You've just got to try to save yourself. Well, they head for the door, and the whole family is gathered downstairs, and Dad hits him with that question. What's your purpose in life? It's particularly cutting because we know from the delivery that he is implying that it is void except for what they decide to use him for. And when it all comes clear, and Rose says, you know I can't give you the keys. And that babe that she punctuates the sentence with is like a dagger made of ice. He's tried to hang on for any number of reasons, some of which you've mentioned. Even though he's now suspicious of her, he doesn't want to abandon Rose like he feels he abandoned his mother. Or even if those pictures were enough to convince him that Rose is an enemy, maybe if he can just get those keys somehow, he can get out of here with minimal damage. But now we know he has zero options. He can't fight these people in their own home. He will ultimately lose that battle one way or the other, either at their hands or the hands of the police. He can't run. He's outnumbered in the middle of nowhere and on their home ground. Missy directs the men, Dad and Jeremy with that damn lacrosse stick, to take him downstairs, the place we haven't seen yet. And he watches them carry his body on this TV screen as he goes into the sunken place. As Rose tells him, you are one of my favorites. I did mention a while ago that he maybe has no one in his corner, but thankfully... Rod is trying to figure out where he is and what's happened to him. He hasn't come back on time. He uses the internet. He sees that Andre has been missing for some time and starts to draw up his different ideas about what might have occurred. I didn't realize until I was reading about it that the thing he crossed off was magic. <laughs> we definitely have to watch this over and over again to catch those things. Well, in the meantime, Chris is captured and shackled to his chair in the basement, and phase two of the process begins. His psychological preparation for the transmutation. 
the video that he's forced to watch, it echoes what her dad said earlier. It's a service we offer. It was a phrase he used about the hypnosis. Here, the service amounts to creating black bodies with no black consciousness in them. And this is really, for me, where horror and terror begin to intersect, most certainly. This goes all the way back to the beginnings of the genre. Classic horror is full of examples of the fear of your body either in revolt or being controlled by outside forces. A number of the monsters in the Universal Pantheon, along with other films from the same time period that are the bedrock of the horror genre, deal at least in part with this idea. Dracula infects your blood and uses hypnosis, hence corrupting your body and your mind. The Wolfman, the Invisible Man, Jekyll and Hyde, all of those characters have bodies that they can no longer control. In Frankenstein, your body isn't safe from plunder even in death. You can be reanimated and used to do someone's bidding. It's so inextricably intertwined in the DNA of the genre, the universality of this terror should be clear to anyone who is a student of horror. You left one out. Okay, I hesitate to ask, but I will bite. What did I leave out? Freaky Friday. Okay, I knew I shouldn't. How do you see Get Out tying to that tradition? It zeroes in on this fear in a very specific way, tying it to the history in America of black bodies being seen as nothing but a commodity from their very introduction to this continent. Simply put, these are the deep-rooted, everyday fears of a significant portion of our population. It's just the truth. If you can't empathize, that's one thing. Okay, you've never been in that situation, so you don't truly know how they feel. But if you say you can't sympathize, then it becomes a little dodgier. That seems to indicate an unwillingness to even try to understand. Surely we are not so different as people that you can't access the memory of a similar situation that you've been in or a relatable emotion. And if you're one of those people, and they are unfortunately out there, that find yourself actually upset at the notion that black people are expressing their fears through cinema or any other art, if this makes you mad that it simply exists, you need to ask yourself some hard questions. If that's the way you know you feel, why would you go see a film that's clearly about race, particularly the fears and anxieties unique to being black in America in the first place? Is this the disconnect maybe that some people are feeling when they say it's not scary? When I hear that, I'm reminded of that Chris Rock joke about run DMC, and how they don't ask Dick Van Patten for his input when they make a record. On one level, you just have to accept that some of it's just not for you, and not everything has to be. I know I'll only ever be able to understand what Jordan Peele is trying to tell me up to a point. I can understand it on an intellectual level, but I will never feel it as part of my own experience. That's just the nature of things. I will never feel, for instance, like my body doesn't belong to me in the same way. I'll get it, but I'll never get it, quote-unquote. But that's one of the things that's most interesting about this. That built-in limitation makes this one of those instances where it's most important to listen to other people's reaction to the film. That makes me think of another Chris Rock joke, where he's talking about how difficult it is to understand racism until you think about this. He listed off all of these accomplishments that he has, and still... No one wants to be him, and he's rich. I also think about how much I can empathize with this. I do know what it feels like to know for certain that my body is not my own, that other people are making decisions actively about it, and it's still not the same as this. I do not mean to equate those two experiences. When I was about five years old, I don't ever recall putting my hands up against a TV screen that was filled with static and turning around to tell my parents that they're here. And yet that film terrorizes me. So I'm with you. If you can't find something in this to connect to, you got some problems. Well, meanwhile, Rod is out there conducting his investigation and giving us a little relief and room to breathe before phase three goes completely haywire. He takes his evidence to the cops, and this detective is skeptical, but Rod is actually closer to the truth than even he knows. This beat that she pauses when she hears that the girl in question is white, it works on a couple of different levels. First and foremost, it's funny. Second, I like it because it's a bit of sly commentary that that piece of information is legitimately enough to make the rest of what seems like a crazy story plausible to her. At least just enough to leave the door open a crack for him to get a foot in. Ultimately, though, he can't convince him and he's left to pursue this on his own. He tries to reach Chris one last time, and he gets Rose instead this time, and it only confirms his worst fears. 
she starts to weave this tale that Chris left several days ago, that she's upset as well, she doesn't know where he is. Rod tries to catch her in some sort of a lie, but she expertly turns it around on him, focusing his own fears, making it sound like that maybe he's into her, which could cause all kinds of problems. And he hangs up on her like he's terrified, and he says she's a genius. Well, back at the Armitages, we have reached phase three, transmutation, brain transfer. And Chris asks a very good question. Why black people? And I don't think that Root's character's answer is taking everything into account here. He wants Chris for his eyes, so he can see and take photographs again, so he can see what Chris sees. But you don't take good photographs because you have 20-20 vision. The eyes he wants won't be powered by the same brain, by the same soul, so they'll be just as useless as the eyes he had before his vision went bad the first time. He says he truly doesn't care what color Chris is. In fact, I think that's genuine. But I also think that is deep satire because this color blindness, with quotation marks around it, while he is still seeking to exploit his body to the absolute limit, is another indictment of that post-racial myth. We started this conversation a little bit earlier. Can that world even exist? Is that what we should be aiming for? At one point, I think I might have said yes, thinking about some far-off, almost science fiction future. There's that Woody Guthrie lyric about all creeds and kinds and colors, all of us are blending, with the idea that one day we'll all be just alike and working together. I've since moved away from that as an achievable or even desirable ideal. Harmony is a lofty goal, but I think that particular conception of it was more than a little naive on my part, and even more importantly, I think that discounts the benefit of diverse cultures and what everybody gets from that interaction that we can't get from our own or from a larger homogenized culture. So the answer isn't to be post-racial. It's not to necessarily blend away our differences. How about this for a crazy idea? We just treat everyone like a human being without denying or diminishing their culture and contributions. I'm not going to attempt to follow that. Okay. <laughs> I'll just keep us going with the film. Now, wait, at least tell me because you think I got it right or because I got it way wrong. No, I come down on the same side okay. with you. Okay, at least I can sleep easier knowing that. But let me fast forward, though, because I don't want to relive the parts where we see the scalp being removed. <laughs> it looks like an egg or a turtle Shut shell. Shut up. <laughs> so instead, let's make another connection back to slavery. Chris in that armchair pulling the stuffing out. And they went so far as to put actual cotton inside of it so that he was picking cotton to save his life. Yeah, I liked the subtlety of that one. I think that's one that a lot of people might have missed the first time around. I also like, on the other side of the racial divide, all of the imagery surrounding Jeremy, his weapons, and his overwhelming whiteness. They're really great touches. That helmet that he wore in the intro, when you get a good look at it, it's a medieval knight's helmet. It happens so fast in the opening that it only generates this subliminal connection, but it immediately makes me think it provides a visual link to the Crusades. The lacrosse stick that you mentioned is probably the second whitest weapon you could pick after a pitching wedge. And finally, live by the bocce ball, die by the bocce ball. Chris thankfully manages to dispatch Jeremy and Dad, runs him through with a deer head. The deer head's a potent symbol, too, and I don't think people are catching everything with that as well. It's not just a deer, it's a buck. He also violently stabs mom to death as well. None of this violence is shied away from. He has to get the upper hand somehow, and he manages to do it with his cunning. But it is the physicality that wins the day with those three deaths. Meanwhile, Rose is upstairs, and this is when I knew, without a doubt, that she was absolutely out of her mind. Do you know how I knew? Was it the J. Crew uniform, or the separate Fruit Loops in the glass of milk, or the Dirty Dancing soundtrack? I'll get to the Fruit Loops, but the way I knew was, only sociopaths use Bing. Boy, ain't that the truth. But it doesn't help her case that she's eating cereal one Fruit Loop at a time. And I love this because it works on a few levels. One, she's nuts, Fruit Loops. Two, it gives me the feeling that she's developmentally arrested, 
somewhat, never having truly grown past when she was recruited into all this. And three, the pristine white milk is kept separated. You mentioned her J. Crew outfit. That costume choice at the end was really interesting too, I thought. The androgyny of it is really intriguing. This being what she reverts to when she's not on the job. Because in essence, she doesn't own her body either. It's being employed for another purpose. Allison Williams was an unknown quantity for me. I have no cultural attachment to her. What the audience might have brought to this from girls, for instance, is a void for me. I am closer to understanding what it's like to be a young black man than what it's like to be someone that watches girls. I haven't seen girls either, so I won't try to defend it one okay. way or the other. But she's also in being looking for her next victim. So the cycle is going to go on unless somebody does something about it. In these struggles, as he's murdered this family who were seeking to murder him, he does get the keys to Jeremy's car. He's trying to call 911 and he hits Georgina. He can't leave her like his mom. So he puts her in the car. Big mistake. The house is on fire at this point and Rose has a rifle and she's coming after Chris and Georgina in the car. Georgina, who we know is now grandma, wakes up and starts to attack him, causing an accident. Rose is firing at the car, hits the mirror, tries to hit him as he's loping away injured. Grandpa, who is Walter, is sent to try to get him. Chris manages to take a photo which, as with Andre slash Logan, kind of snaps him out of that sunken place. And it's Walter who has the rifle, shoots Rose, and then kills himself. Now that we catalog all of this, this ending is carnage. It's crazy when you actually list all of this. And there's just one left to go. Rose is not quite dead. She's gut shot, so she'll get there eventually. But for now, she still has enough strength and wherewithal to try to finish Chris off. He can't let that happen, and he wraps his hands around her throat. And as all this is playing out, flashing lights pull up the driveway. It's a great twist. It's not what we think. The police car is actually salvation, which is extremely ironic in this cultural climate. And Lil Rail gets in one last I told you so line. I think there is a great deal of catharsis in this finale that some portions of the audience just can't deal with. They don't want to acknowledge for a couple of reasons. On one hand, it makes some of them supremely uncomfortable to see the tables turned on them. The idea, and especially the image, of a black man choking a white woman, even though she maliciously lured him into a slavery brain-switching scheme, essentially attempting to murder him for all intents and purposes, will always be completely unpalatable for that segment of the audience. They'll just never be able to deal with it, with not winning, with not being in charge. And then, on the other side, I'm sure at least some don't want to cop to the fact that they, too have harbored revenge fantasies that go to these extremes. They like to think of themselves as above that, but internally they cheer. For once, in a mainstream film, they come out on top and also get to administer punishment with no repercussions. Or maybe they aren't so uncomfortable with it. Maybe I overestimate that, because there is no shortage of accounts of theaters breaking out into cheers at the end of this film. Jordan Peele has talked about having nightmares around these ideas, thinking that there might be fights in the theater, creating more animosity than unity, which is not what he was going for, definitely. He just hoped that taking care of the script and the performances would give the audience an opportunity to drop any preconceived notions and live through the protagonist. What he has given us here all of us who have felt an extreme level of fatigue around everything that we read and experience, he's given us what I think we needed. A hero, an escape, and a way to confront those horrors. He talks about using The Stepford Wives as a template, a movie that really affected him when he first saw it. When he watched it, he didn't feel persecuted as a man. He related to the main character, who was Catherine Ross, and understood everything she was feeling, how her mental state gets her through the film, and ultimately decided that he has to give the audience credit. Credit to engage in these things intellectually, to feel these things, to question our own assumptions, 
to question our own violent tendencies, which we should generally be doing with horror anyway. And so he doesn't shy away from the violence at the end. I know that I felt a huge relief from it, and I have to think about how much joy I get from it, from seeing wrongs righted. You've talked about horror as a conservative genre many times before. And I think you also have to look at that ending and again question yourself. I'm coming back to Jordan Peele again. Something he said really struck me. He loved A Nightmare on Elm Street, but he got really uncomfortable with it as the movies progressed and it became about Freddy Krueger being really humorous, that he was expected to root for this monster who was killing people, and he said he just wasn't there. I don't think this is the same situation. But, as you mentioned, we have to think about how and when we derive pleasure from violence, if we do. I like how much there is out there to access that he has to say about this. That doesn't necessarily mean I want a director to go through his film or her film and describe everything and tell me what it strictly meant. But I do like having this as a resource. It's very different from, say, something like Bride of Frankenstein. We don't have access in a similar way to all the things that James Whale was thinking about when he made that. And I would love to know those things. So I really think that this was great that this was so high profile and he was interviewed for it so much that there is a large body of material out there that we can access that gives us a deeper insight into it without actually going through it point by point and laying it out for us. Now, I mentioned The Bride of Frankenstein. When I think of genre classics, I think of the films I come back to every year. And at the time of the release of this, the word masterpiece got thrown around an awful lot. Does Get Out have that kind of staying power? Because once you know the deal... It's a decidedly different experience every time after that first time. Is that new experience one that holds up to repeat viewings, or is it better understood in its very particular time and context? Because the way it captured the zeitgeist is one aspect of it that we just can't ignore. We've talked on the Patreon bonus episodes and in conversation with each other about 2018 being a watershed year for marginalized filmmakers. Things seem to have crystallized around Me Too and the resounding success of films like Black Panther in a way that finally seems more permanent than every time it's happened before. So much seems like it has changed so fast, in fact, that it's easy to forget that it's been since March 2017 that this came out. Its success at the box office and during awards season, and maybe to a slightly lesser degree Moonlight the year before, paved the way for a lot of the things that we are seeing come to fruition in 2018. The farther we get away from it in time, though, will it still have the same power? And while I'm asking you all these questions, does it work equally well as social commentary and horror, or does one aspect overpower the other for you? Okay, I have to diagram that all up (laughs) to make sure that I answer everything. I almost wish it had less staying power. Just watching it this week, there are enough horrible things happening that make it even more relevant to probably completely different segments of the audience than when it debuted. At the time that he wrote it, there were different things happening, and then by the time it came out, it seemed to justify its own existence. As he mentions, as we know, these forces have been around for a very, 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 very long time. Some of us are progressively getting more woke to it. And so the more you open your eyes, I think the more terrifying this will continue to be. Even without all of that, take all of that away. You have excellent performances, you have genuine scares, you have an incredibly well-crafted film. I think it succeeds on its own terms, I think it succeeds on my terms, and it does give the audience credit. It allows us to fall into it and stay with it and be completely scared by it. And still, if we can find all of these things to talk about, things that didn't occur to us the first time or even the second time, I think it has staying power. Well, how about your recommendation? Do you have something that has equal staying power to that? I think I do. I picked Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 version. I chose this one because each version does adapt with the times. And I find that I respond less to a fear of communism than to the ultimate betrayal and how people in power can wield their evil designs and ensnare us. It also employs that 
key element of psychotherapy and pop psychology and some alternative therapies that I think really closely align with this film too. This version was directed by Philip Kaufman with Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, Veronica Cartwright, and Leonard Nimoy. If you don't know the story, the human race is being replaced one by one with clones devoid of emotion. The part that stays with me the most is that scream slash roar that comes out of one's mouth when they spot an as yet unsnatched body. My recommendation this time around is Ganja and Hess from 1973, directed by Bill Gunn and starring Dwayne Jones and Marlene Clark. In this, an anthropologist is stabbed with an ancient cursed dagger by his assistant, who then kills himself. And as a result of the stabbing, he becomes a vampire and then falls in love with the assistant's widow and turns her as well. I chose it for two reasons. One, I think it is one of the essential films of black horror cinema. And two, it also keeps the viewer off balance throughout. In this case, with fractured narrative and experimental technique, Gunn deconstructs the vampire mythos and pushes the story into a realm so bizarre that your usual cinematic horror touchstones are of no use to you for navigation. It's such an idiosyncratic work and was mercilessly edited upon its release. They cut almost 40 minutes out of it after it appeared at Cannes. But with recent home video releases, you can finally see it in the form Gunn intended, and you really should if you are a fan of those films that you might consider unclassifiable. As usual, that's two great recommendations, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Ganja and Hess. And that brings us to the end of episode 87. First and foremost, we want to say a special thanks to Scott Pollard for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. We appreciate that so much, and we hit kind of a milestone as Scott was our 50th patron. We know we're not a huge show, so we are very aware of the ratio of support we get for our size and how extraordinary that is, and we are very grateful. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check us out at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you'll never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern. We're cooking up episodes like the filmography of William Castle, Casa Negra. And we're going to end the month with an overview of some of our favorite horror anthology films. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Travis Trudell, the fine gentleman at FUDS on Film, Leanne Kubich, Andy Wolverton, Matteo Boscarol, Marcus Penn, and Terry Osterhout. Terry, his wife Liz, and their friend John have a new podcast that they just launched called Reasonable Buzzkill. And it's a weekly show where they discuss current events, culture, religion, politics, and art. So check that out if you are in the market for a new show that is diverse and engaging. I wanted to say another special thanks again to Brian Sauer for inviting me on his Just the Discs podcast to talk about Susan Seidelman's Smithereens. We've gotten a lot of good feedback about that episode, so thanks to everyone for listening. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and now Spotify. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Thank you to the nice person who left us an anonymous five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>